Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry, and we are talking about justice versus social justice. So we're fully immersed now, right? We're no longer dipping. We're, we're in it. We're in Swimming. it. Um, we encourage you to listen to our past podcasts on critical race theory and intersectionality. It's important. Um, the whole battle and debate that's going on right now in our nation regarding the role of racism in the history and current reality of Americans. And all of this, we would say it's purporting to come from uh, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. But let's be honest, none of us are thinking about George Floyd anymore. He's in his gold casket in the ground and he's done. Um, But in places right now, as we speak in Portland and Seattle, there have been rioting for the last 50 plus days. Um, Even though the major news outlets are literally working as hard as they can to downplay it. Uh, So we, we, as I said, we dealt with that critical race theory and intersectionality. And all we basically said in that was that they're biblically bankrupt They should not be a part or a basis for Christians to have a so-called conversation. Uh, If you have not heard it, go listen to it uh, because we're not going to rehash it. Um, Today, what we want to focus then on is the idea of what's called social, in quotes, social justice, as opposed to just simple justice. Um, Now, that may sound a bit strange to some, but There's a lot of stuff that gets put into the meaning of social. And in fact, I would argue that every day more gets packed in there. Um, And when you begin to unpack it, you begin to, or you may find that it's a bit more slanted and contorted than you really are comfortable with. All that would, all I mean by that is I think a lot of people use it and they use it innocently, but they don't understand what they're saying. Just like the Black Lives Matter. It's like, well, don't capitalize it. It's like how... How, how do I can't hear disconnected from and well and I can't hear you not capitalizing <laughs> when, sure. when you say BLM right Black Lives Matter right Pastor it's like big B or little B you know and 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 if it's little B sure as long as you're willing to say all lives matter and then they freak out and say you're racist and he's like so it is the big B uh, yeah, yeah. We, if you haven't figured out, we don't like this subject. We don't want to talk about the subject. And so if we sound a bit annoyed <laughs> throughout this thing, um, it's because we are. So um, to be honest, um, whether or not you're comfortable with something, though, is not the issue. The real one is, does the ideas that are being p- pushed within the social justice world have a natural place for Christians? That's the real question. Are these biblical issues, or to use a cool term, are they gospel issues? Um, we are talking the other day, well, Matt and I were talking the other day, how this whole thing is cr- actually creating a real division within the visible church in America. It's not allowing really for much middle ground. For pastors, this is really something that's especially true because they're finding that their church members want some sort of position and clarity on the subject. And they realize if I land here, this half of my congregation goes away. If I land here, this half goes away. And it's because they never really established a biblical position. 
on these things in the first place. They spoke very broadly. And so they attracted all sorts of things and never brought clarity to it. So like, a, I think we met, I don't know if we said on the podcast or not, but a church like John MacArthur, that's, they're not freaking out over the social justice thing. They're not splitting over it because John has faithfully taught the other pastors so long on a biblical sense of what justice is. Whereas other churches where everything's all gospel-centered, gospel issue uh, things, they speak so vaguely that they never land anywhere. Uh, and so you feel good until it becomes something very specific. And that's what's happening right now. It's something very specific. What do you believe? And it's creating real division. Well, as many as you know, and if you don't, you need to know, Matt and I are pastors, and that is the primary focus of these podcasts, to equip our church members in sound doctrine and to be able to sniff out poor and false doctrine, hence the name of the podcast, which is Faith and Fable, which was Matt Miller's name, right? I wanted cutting it straight. In a crooked world. In a crooked world. That's what I wanted. Yeah, that won't even fit on a t-shirt. Oh, whatever. Um <laughs> I still like it. Cutting it straight in a crooked world. But we settle with Need faith and fable. behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, 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 do. But I have to agree that it's an excellent name. Faith and fable. Um, we're trying to build people up in the faith and in the process reveal that, which is fable. So today we're not going to try to conquer the whole problem uh, of social justice because we can't. Uh, frankly, it's a constantly changing target that's as evolving as fast as videos and articles can get out there. Uh, rather, we want to bring a bit of clarity to it by considering biblically what justice is all about and to expose then some of the errors that this uh, movement is promulgating. So, Matt, why don't you start out with just saying what is social justice? Sure. Well, we started with critical race here and intersectionality on purpose because— um, whether people know it or not, they truly are the engines that drive and is driving the entire social justice movement. And they, they create essentially new categories that are not consistent with biblical theology about sin, about salvation, about the nature of man. Instead of uh, one human race with various ethnicities, which is correct, biblically, we now have multiple races. Um, and so one of the vile lies of this movement within the church is actually a counter racism that's occurring. Um, you know, whites and especially white males are now racist simply because they're white. Um, you know, flip that around and you can see it easily. Yeah. The moment you look at a person and say, well, you're just saying that cause you're black, bam, you are a racist. Um, but it right now you go the other way and say, well, that's because you're white. Somehow that's not a racist statement. It's like, you, you can't say that. Yeah. So, so if we were to say all blacks, just by virtue of the fact that they're black, prove that they're inferior. Well, that's a very unbiblical worldview. <laughs> um, but in effect, that's what, and we're, we, we've heard it. We've experienced that. You, now, if, if you say, well, you're just white, I mean, that's a racist statement. And a prejudice statement um, at best. And so a Christian has to reject that. But sadly, right now, many will not reject that lie when it's placed upon the so-called white man. Right. So you got Christians all over the place repenting of their whiteness. And you're like, what are you? Yeah. Anyhow, go ahead. So this whole movement seeks to make illegitimate any thought or term that removes race from the picture. Um, Meaning they have to keep race there. That is the lens yeah. through which everything is seen interpreted and acted upon. Um, 
therefore you prove you are racist when you claim to be colorblind. You're not allowed to say that. Uh, or if you refuse to be made guilty of past sins of this nation. So if you ask, how am I being a racist? They'll simply brush you aside because they claim that therefore proves you to be racist. Now, when we're talking about colorblindness, that's not the same thing as saying we're not aware of cultures, right? I mean, right. we travel overseas. I mean, you and I walk up into Ethiopia. We're not trying to change their culture. You know, we, we understand that they're not white people, right? And they understand that we are white people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But we don't, I mean, that's not the issue. The color is not the issue. What's the issue is the culture. Right. Um, and so we're not trying to deny people's cultures here. Um, but now the conversation is that colorblindness. If, if you're, if you choose to be colorblind, you're racist. Well, no, um, because we're still acknowledging that different cultures exist. So the great need of humanity is to deal with oppression from other humans. This that, is now that, the conversation. Yeah, that's what social justice argues is that we have to deal with this oppression. Right. So so sin is no longer primary, um, primarily an infinite offense against a holy creator. Sin is now any perceived, and that's the key word, perceived oppression against a self-proclaimed minority. Um, again, how women, I, Vody pointed this out, I think, yeah. how, how women are in the minority doesn't make sense statistically because there's more women than men in this country. Right, but they're a minority Yeah, because they're oppressed. Right, self-proclaimed. So the argument shifts from a creator-to-creature relationship to now a human-to-human -human relationship. Now, these are in themselves not mutually exclusive categories, but there is an order of priority. Um, you know, you're to, you're to love God with all of your heart. Um, and then second, you're to love your neighbor. But it's the second one. It's not the first is love your neighbor and then love God with all your heart. There's a the, the loving your neighbor flows from right. first that creature creator relationship. So you must first get the that that first one right before the second one can be done or even make any sense. How do you even know what loving your neighbor looks like if you don't understand God who is love? Um, and doing the second one is a way to show your love for God uh, again, of course, as you love His creatures. But the rub comes in when you think through what the Bible would call love. Um, again, in this movement, it gets some radical redefining to mean showing equity uh, or equality of outcome, I would argue, and the elimination of anything that creates so-called oppression. Um, so if, if the problem is not sinners under the wrath of God, but a perceived equality of outcome between humans, then the solution is now changed. Right. So the solution becomes that which is primarily social, and that's key. You have to change the social norms and destroy systems that are supposedly in place that promote the impression. So courts would uh, could should change how they punish lawbreakers. Police should change how they make arrests and patrol. Schools should change how they grade children and what is expected to be learned. Public policy should reflect the desires of the minority rather than majority, and so on and so forth. So no longer is it repent from your sin and a turn to the living God. No longer is it a call upon the name of no longer is it a call to to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved from his wrath. No longer is it to go into all the world and preach the gospel, calling people everywhere to repent. In fact, many of them are now arguing that the gospel mandate of missions is actually white oppression and it's evil. Um, so again, what is social justice. In one sense, frankly, we don't know. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> who you're talking to. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you just don't know. There are so many ideas thrown around out there, but we have 
Nonetheless, a few definitions that may help paint a picture. And this is why the critical race theory becomes important because you'll hear echoes of that in what I'm going to read. So the United Nations say this, social justice may be broadly understood as the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Um, that's a lo- nice way of saying redistribution of wealth. Right. Um, it also says this, social justice is treated as synonymous with distributive justice. Oh, by the way, you can get the link to the UN on this, and it's a 157-page document. Enjoy reading it. Um, They go on to show then how justice, the term justice, evolves depending on what adjective you put before it. So social justice becomes economic justice or becomes distributive justice and so on and so forth. So if you wonder, well, what is distributive justice in? Because somehow that's social justice. Then just do a search on it and prepare to melt your brain. Um, But essentially, it's arguing that a nation's policies and laws, now again, think about how much you hear this, that a nation's policies and laws create a system whereby whatever situation you're born into captures you and it prevents you from improving your situation. And so this theory argues, therefore, for a change in the systems so as to move people into a better life situation. That's what we're hearing, systemic racism. And right. it's all about this distributive justice, which is social justice, which is economic justice, blah, 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 blah. So that's one definition. Here's another one. This comes from, uh, uh, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but you'll get the link if you look at the show notes. Social justice encompasses economic justice. So there it is again. Social justice is a virtue which guides us in creating those organized human interactions we call institutions. In turn, social institutions, when justly organized, provide us with access to what is good for the person, both individually and in their associations with others. Social justice also imposes on each of us a personal responsibility to work with others to design and continually perfect our institutions as tools for personal and social development. Now, I challenge you to figure out what that really is saying. But what it's, one thing you'll notice that there is no a definition of what just is or what is good. Because we've divorced ourselves with the social justice movement is divorced from the word of God and with that which is true. So here's another one. Social justice is the equal access to wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. So really, if after all the reading, if you'll do it, once you strip it down, social justice becomes a framework in which Marxism can finally be realized, but not by calling it Marxism. So They'll say, no, we're about social justice. We're not Marxists. It's like, no, if you do enough reading, you realize all the roots go back into Marxism and that whole economic theory of redistribution of wealth um, and power. So with that, now, what is a biblical sense of justice? Because that is, in a nutshell, essentially that vague target called social justice that every Christian ought to be about, according to Jamar Tisby. Yeah, and it's a moving target. Um, so, so yeah, what is biblical justice? Well, first we'd say biblical justice does not necessarily equal social justice. Um, so as, as we, we briefly showed already, social justice is primarily interested in the distri- distribution of wealth and opportunities for personal advancement for those who are 
you know, considered underprivileged or marginalized and breaking down those unspoken but very present privileges given to one group of people. So real quickly, an example of that would be with the immigration thing. You come into the country illegal, should you be kicked out of the country? I would say, yes, you're not in the country the right way. Um, but in social justice movement, no, we should grant them all the rights and privileges of what we as citizens who are born with those privileges, and I don't care what color you are, if you're born in America, you are granted incredible privileges under the Constitution, right? right? Um, an, an illegal immigrant does not have those, but we are bending over backwards to say, yes, they should get those things. Um, and the mess is before us as a result. Yeah. And well, built into that idea, there, there's a belief that everyone must have equal rights and access to social, political, and economic opportunities. Now, not merely the freedom to pursue those things, but actually to possess those things. Uh, that's an important distinction. Yeah. Now, even if you want to argue that that is an American value, we would say fine. But for the Christian, at least, that does not it does not necessarily follow that that is a biblical value. Um, and again, if you're going to have a biblical worldview, you have to develop these things from the scriptures. Um, so, so there's a lot of assumptions at work in statements like these where we simply presume that systems of equality are somehow true biblical justice. Uh, also understand that this is a definition, as we've been saying, it's very hard to pin down because it does change for the purpose of suiting each unique situation. Um, in fact, some of this, um, the, the, this concept of equality of opportunity and outcome, we would say is just, it's egalitarianism, plain and simple. Uh, in other words, equality is what equals justice in this conception. But we would say that that is not correct or true from a biblical perspective. Remember, there's not even equality within the Trinitarian Godhead. Economically. Correct. Not ontologically. Yeah. So, <laughs> so all, all three persons are equally God. We acknowledge that. Um, just as we could say that all people are equal image bearers of God, but not all three members of the Trinity share an equality of roles or function. Um, and so if we're going to presume that equality is what equals justice, then we have to conclude that there's actually injustice within the Godhead, which would be a statement that is heretical. Yeah. Um, was it unjust that Jesus had to die and not the Father? Right. You know, somebody had to go on the cross. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't the spirit take on flesh? Yeah, right. yeah. Well, you know, clearly the son's the oppressed member of the uh, Trinity. Well, we all know that's folly and that's vile, but that's exactly what we're saying. They they had unique functions or roles, and and they're not necessarily equal in that. They're equally God. So they're ontologically, their being or essence is still the same, but their roles and and uh, and Functions are different. Yeah, the, the the father doesn't obey the son. Never. Uh, and nor the spirit, but the son obeys the father. Right. So he wasn't oppressed because he came to do do the will of the father and only the will of the father. That that was his function, and it was right and good. In fact, our salvation depends on right. him subjecting himself to what social justice would call an oppressive action by the father. Right. Yeah, and so the the term. Also understand the term justice, it's not just an empty vessel to be filled with whatever we want it to mean. One of the greatest fallacies in biblical studies is something known as the lexical fallacy. 
Um, so you, you do a word study and you look up the term and you find the root meaning um, and you assume it is the meaning in every use in every instance that it appears in the Bible. Yeah. Um, that's just not how language works. No. Or, or you do the opposite and assume that all the possible meanings are present in every or in any given instance. It's just not how language works. At all. Yeah. Um, if you want a more scholarly review on that, you can read an article by um, Dr. Wallace. You know who he is? Daniel Wallace? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Incredible New Testament scholar yeah. out of Dallas. Right. Um, yeah, he wrote the thing on syntax. Yeah. The big honking yeah. thing. Yeah. Thing. yeah. <laughs> you know you got to be a scholar when you can write a whole <laughs> tome on syntax. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, we'll put that link in the show notes for you. Um, so justice is a term that carries various meanings in the Bible and in the context always in which it is written helps bring out, it clarifies and defines what that means. Um, and so what we're going to try and, and show here is that the biblical term or idea for justice is one that centers around doing what is proper and right and fair. Uh, again, the Bible does not use the term equality in the manner that our culture is currently trying to define it. We see social justice movement confusing equity or fairness with equality. Um, but again, equity and fairness does not mean equality, and we're going to show that. So, um, Okay, so we're, we're to function with equity and fairness, even if the system does not actually produce equal outcomes. Right. right. Yeah, there can right. be justice without equality of outcomes. Right, and yeah. it's okay. Uh, in fact, it's very important to note that when in the New Old Testament, that people suffered setbacks and poverty. That was just part of it, just like they do today. People were in vulnerable positions, such as being widows. Uh, but never is it seen somehow as being unjust because they're in that state. Um, right. Nor was it required that the rest of Israel had to fix it for them. They had to leave the corners of their fields and untouched. So, but then the poor person had to go out and glean it. It wasn't their job to then also go harvest it, grind it, and then distribute it to them and make certain that they got the same amount of grain as a guy who owned the field, right. planted the, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, whatever you can get out of this corner, it's yours and go to work. Um, but never is it that equal idea. Uh, the law said that they are to be treated justly. That is, they are to be cared for and not taken advantage of, but nor were they to be shown preference either. Uh, that's partiality. So instead, biblical justice is giving a person what is due them, but in light of what the facts reveal. So biblical justice is focused not on showing partiality and preference in deciding what is right. And inherent to this are then the laws and the courts and the making judgments, whether it's at home or in the business world or in the courts or even the political world, you can't show partiality one way or the other. So you can't show partiality to the rich man, but you also can't show partiality to the widow. You've got to show justness, treat things in a fair way. Essentially, the underlying principle here is that what is right is far more important than what is expedient or profitable or produces somehow equality of outcome. And that's that's an important distinction because right now people are saying what is right is that which is expedient, profitable, or producing right. equality of outcome. Right. And we're saying no, it's not. What is right is something different, potentially, and that it's more important than what's expedient, profitable, or producing equality of outcome. And yeah, and it may hurt. It may not work out. 
but yeah, okay. So in light of that, the context of the passages that deal with justice generally will center around some sort of decision-making body. It's not just vaguely floating around about justice. So you have things like a court, but also on occasion it can refuel, refer to an individual who is doing what is proper and right, that I am, as a person, I need to deal justly with a person. I need to do what's right. Example of this would be... Um, Exodus 23, 6, where he says, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute. Doesn't mean you just give him whatever he demands, but there is something that's due him. And because he's needy, he's not a person of power or influence, and you cannot pervert justice due to him. So it's not speaking of welfare or reparations or open borders. It speaks of the fact that when a poor person comes to the court, that you treat him no differently than anyone else. He is equal in the sight of the law. Uh, of the, lower, uh, the law. Yeah. Um, another one would be Deuteronomy 26, 16, which says, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statues and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, here the word for ordinance is the same term that's used for justice. Um, it refers to God's laws that were given by him, and therefore, just by that fact, they're just. Yeah. Um, they, they were, so they so were, stoning, never mind, no. I'll get ahead of myself. <laughs> yeah, they, so they were to do them. They were to perform these laws. Um, in other words, they were to obey them, and if they did, now they're engaged in the practice of doing justice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another one would be Micah 6, 8. Oh, that one. Uh, yeah, this is one that's being used a lot too. Um, it says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we see this and we think all sorts of things, but again, it's a passage that's speaking to Israel, which let us remind you, is, is an explicitly covenantal community under Mosaic law. And so it's speaking to a people who had the law of God, again, the, those objective things that were handed down to them. And that's very important to keep in mind um, that the nation was living in rebellion to the ways of the covenant they had through Moses. Um, and this was a, a covenant that included very specific laws. So in that sense, then, to do justice is to just simply go back and become obedient to those particular and explicit laws of Moses. And again, as you did that, you were treating people fairly, you were doing justice. Uh, additionally, not one of them had to wonder what it meant to do justice. Um, it simply meant to go back and obey what God had already told them that they were to do. 613 commands in right. Mosaic law. To, to, to perform those 613 commands, again, we'll say it, is to do justice in this context. Um, remember, they were living in a theocratic nation in which justice had been objectively determined for them. And so they're all operating from that same source, that same standard, which existed outside of them. In other words, there's no debate as to what justice was or by what standard justice was determined or measured. Um, and this is why it's difficult for us now to use these Old Testament passages. We don't live under the old covenant in a theocratic nation where everyone's operating from that same objective source or principles. All right. So what then, what would some modern day application of what we have said uh, be so far? Well, the principle is that we should not be making laws that benefit one group of people over another. That's what it means. Right. Um, 
This is where things get a little adventurous, though, because we certainly have seen this partiality in our history. In fact, we would argue that a shameful part of our history was that separate but equal doctrine uh, of, uh, in the past that basically established that if you had a nice school for the whites but poorly made and maintained school for the blacks, that it was fine. You can have nice water fountains for the whites and the ones for blacks are for the one that are the ones out back. Um, this sort of law, for example, is a direct opposite of what a biblically just law would look like because you're saying we show preference to this person and not this person. But, but let's flip that around and think about some of the things you're hearing people talk about now. How about hiring quotas? In fact, I was just listening to uh, Seattle. They were realizing if they reduce their budget the way they're going to have to, they're going to have to let go a lot of police officers. The problem is a lot of the police officers um, who have been most recently hired are minorities. And so they re so then it was brought up that, look, if we do that, then the, the people who are most recently hired as police officers have to be terminated. And so then some city councilwoman said, well, no, what we'll do is base it upon their ethnicity. If, if they're whites, we can fire them. And if they're a minority, we can keep them. Well, that's illegal, first of all. But it's also this same partiality um, of no, <laughs> you can't do that. So hiring quotas. How about affirmative action and such? If partiality for one people group is wrong, then what, what do we do about these kinds of laws? And before we jump to the conclusion that this is different because we're trying to make up for lost ground, where in the Bible does it ever make it right to be partial over one group for the other? Now, this is just one example of how the idea of injustice can change in our eyes depending on how we describe it and place it in a very different situation. Um, if it is unjust to require different ethnic groups to drink or eat in different places, then it is also unjust to require different standards and benefits to uh, different ethnic groups. It's that, that's simple, really. The standard of justice does not change simply because there's a history of injustice. Yeah, we'd also say that... Um biblical justice is bound up in God, um, which is unlike social justice. Uh, we'd say biblical justice always begins and ends with, with God alone. And so this has various components, but what's mo most important to know, uh, what is most important is, is to know that God deals with people justly. Uh, always. Yeah. There's not a time where he just wakes up like he slumbers, you know, and it's like, yeah. I'm going to mess him over. Yeah, he doesn't. It's always just. Right. Um, and, and we'll say that that's good, right? But but if, if you're not found to be doing what's right and good in the sight of God, then what you're going to do is you'll, you'll face justice. Um, and so at the present time, this this justice of God is, you know, it's via his, his ordained points of authority, uh, government, parents, employers, um, the elders um, of a church are, can even be an example of that. And there are specific fears. Uh, spheres, but what is is most important to understand is that it looks to the end of all time when all of humanity will be judged. So Psalm one verse five says, "Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous." So on, on the day of judgment, the wicked will not stand before God, no um, matter how oppressed they claim. To right? Be. Yeah, the the wicked are always those who break God's law, um, and so they don't they'll face his justice. <laughs> um, Colossians 4.1 is another one. It says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness 
knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, with this one, let me. It's it's worth noting that slavery in this passage by Paul uh, was not condemned here, nor was it approved, but it, but it wasn't condemned. Uh, it simply addresses how a master is to be if he is a Christian. Um, but the implication, nevertheless, is that you can, in some way, and think about this, have a master-slave relationship and still have justice and fairness. We, I think that's one that some people, that they're going to struggle to understand or, or wrestle with even. Yeah. Because it, it you know, defies our senses. But that's what he says. Yeah. You know, he's not saying deal with them justly so make them no longer slaves. He's like, just when you deal with your slave, they're still your slave, but do with it, do it in justice. So that's a mind blowing moment that people can just. Yeah. You, you can have true that. equity in a slave master relationship. So he, and here's an, here's a system, the slave master relationship. That's a system with unequal outcomes uh, where one has a greater advantage. And yet God's only concern through the apostle is that a person functions properly within that system. In other words, it has nothing to do with, changing the system, uh, or as you said, making that slave-master relationship go away, has nothing to do with changing the system itself under the presumption that equality of outcome is what is just, but rather what is just is how a person lives well in that system. Uh, in other words, right is always right and wrong is always wrong. But the, um, but the key point for, for our purposes in that passage is to notice how the basis of the command is that the master also has an ultimate master. Uh, who will bring justice upon him in light of how he deals with his slaves. And again, this is done in the final judgment. In fact, I, I think of uh, James 5. I remember preaching that when I first came here as pastor. And um, I finally told most of my congregation were blue-collar workers. And I said, for the first, we're finally going to have a sermon that does not directly speak to you. <laughs> um, and like, so relax. And it was, uh, you know, weep and howl, you who are rich. And basically the wages of your uh, workers are crying out um, because they had robbed them. It wasn't say, okay, see that Marxism would say, ah, that's the bourgeois and the proletariat. We need to rise up and rebel. That's not the point. It's they're rich. That's not bad, but that they chose to not deal with their workers in a just manner. The, the worker worked, he was due his wages and they were stealing from him. So an unjust situation with a master slave is, well, he's my slave so I can lie to him. No, you, you can't, you have to speak truth or I can uh, misuse him. No, you can't, you have to treat him justly. That, but, but that doesn't change the relationship or the system. It just simply says within that system, there's still that which is, like you just said, always right. It's always right to speak truth. It's always right to show kindness. It's always right to give them what is due them. Um, and that's important. And so from there, all you got to do is go into thinking about really what biblical justice is about. And it's frightening. It really is frightening when you understand it in light of God, because without the death and resurrection of Jesus, no person has hope. We're all guilty, and we all will find that true justice at the hands of a rightfully angry God. And hell is that final place where justice is found. So because God is just and can only and ever do what is right, he must punish evildoers. So many are arguing and protesting right now for justice, but those same people protesting for justice will find on that final day of judgment that justice will be served by the true 
judge, and they will be found guilty of the highest of crimes, and they shall suffer eternal consequences. That's what makes, when you start saying, we want justice, dude, you don't want justice, you want grace. (laughs) You don't (laughs) want justice because you are now in the realm of God's wrath. Um, You're not going to make it. And it's very, very problematic. So let me ask you this, Matt, why then should Christians reject it? Yeah, well, first, uh, we'd say that the whole movement shifts authority for the Christian away from the Bible. That's a big one. Yeah, and very foundational. Um, Once you buy into the social justice movement, then all of the non-biblical and even, we would say, overtly unbiblical arguments become yours to obey. Um, So so you have to push for, for reparations as a way to repent and redistribute wealth. You need to step down from your privileged position to give it to one of those in the oppressed categories. Uh, you need to help dismantle the so-called systems of racism within the society, uh, whether that's in politics, education, or even the church. Um, no longer can you simply ask, what does the Bible say about this issue? And why can't you ask that? Because you've <laughs> abandoned that sole final authority in your life, which is the word of God alone. This is why so many of the books we read, there's little... Uh, in them by way of Bible exposition, even the, quote, Christian ones that are arguing for what's just, how often are they dealing with the text in any significant Uh, manner? Actually, I went through all the books that we're reading, and I was just skimming through them again to look at the various ways they would use the text. And it was amazing how long the the book would go without any reference to a passage. And if it was, it was used anecdotally. It was just kind of thrown in there rather than let's now deal with the text and let's, you know, expound on it. Yeah. Um, and so now we would say it's the words of MLK or W.E.B. Du Bois or Karl Marx or whomever becomes the authority. That, that's your new authority. That's your new canon, if you will. Um, what's another reason? All right. So the next one is that the movement creates a new hermeneutic, actually, to interpret the Bible. And that is simply the reality. Uh, social justice becomes a lens through which you view reality, and that includes interpreting the Bible. So now the Bible is suddenly against slavery. But in reality, slavery is not rejected wholesale in the Bible, and no amount of declaring otherwise makes that go away. In the New Testament, Philemon now becomes the standard text for slavery, even though it never actually condemned slavery. Never. He doesn't tell um, Philemon, release all the slaves. Right. He just simply says, I'm appealing to you as a brother, even though as an apostle I could command it, I'm appealing to you as a brother to release him, just him, uh, unless, Ones, uh, what, what, what's his name? Onesimus, yeah, um, had only one slave, and it was Philemon, but yeah. we suspect he had others. Um, so when you look at the rest of the New Testament, you will actually see overt commands, and they're not ones condemning slavery but rather living differently within the categories of slave and master. So Jesus now becomes an immigrant in in this new interpretation. Jesus now is an immigrant, an illegal immigrant even, who is oppressed by those in power and ultimately killed. And all of that is simply a a hermeneutic that is new. And you're now, what it really is, is it's not that new. It's liberation theology rehashed. Right. Uh, it was born out of South America and the whole Marxist takeovers of so many of those nations. And uh, we, again, it was a Christianized form of Marxism and rising up against the, the oppressive powers. But it's, it's a hermeneutic, beloved. And at first it sounds so good, but 
once you buy into it, it begins to color everything you read in the Bible because it's now the lens through which you interpret. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, third, we'd also say this movement downplays the injustice of sinners living without a fear of God. Uh, the Bible is refreshingly objective when looking at humanity. <laughs> um, so before the justice of God, we're all guilty and we're all worthy of his eternal wrath. It's, it's that simple. So our cultural position and experiences change nothing really in terms of our position with God. So when considered, fancy term, ontologically, we're all image bearers of the creator. We're all equal in that way. Uh, when considered in light of the gospel, we're all forgiven. We're all children of God and we're all one in Christ. When considered in worship, we all come to the same Lord's Supper. We all drink of that same cup and eat of that same bread. But the social justice world makes us to mean little or nothing. Christians who buy into social justice turn all of this on its ear. It, really, that's it what does. they do. Um, it, it seeks to focus on external differences of people rather than the, those radical, um, that, that radical sameness that's found in being in Christ. Um, really, it's just a, it's a sick form of partiality. Yep, it is. And, and then we'd also say forth that the movement denies the reality of a new relationship and position that's found in Christ. So this is kind of building off of the, the last one. So Colossians 3 talks about how all who come to Christ have laid aside the old man, and you have to go back to anthropology on that one, um, the old man, Adam, and you've now taken up the new man that is Christ. So now you're in Christ. And so he, what Paul is saying in that, though, is so are we now take on a new identity. It's not my race. It's not my social position. It's not my gender. It's none of those things. I now take my new identity, and that identity is in Christ. And so what, what happens then once you take on that true identity of being in Christ? He says, therefore, do not lie to one another in verse 9. Since you have laid aside the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between the Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, by barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. The problem is the Christian social justice movement can not survive when Christians simply live in a biblical view of one another uh, in Christ, primarily because the whole social justice movement is about distinctions and about races and about categories. The Bible just says one, are you in Christ or not? Yeah. If you're not, then you will be the object of his judicial wrath. And if you're in Christ, then that's all that matters. Yeah. And when you say the Bible makes us all one in Christ— that doesn't deny those unique cultural expressions right. of the church. So, like, I, I know you love it too when we go and listen to them sing in Ethiopia. Yeah, that's one of the highlights, right? I mean, the way that they do it um, is is it's beautiful, really. But we would never do that here. You want to really hear good Cameroonians? Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness, they can do a singing like makes you just feel extremely white. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, I wish I could sing like they can sing. They sing with the fullness of their being. It's, yeah. it's humbling. So we're not, yeah, so we're not denying those cultural expressions. We're not trying to flatten things in that sense. But in terms of your ultimate identity, we are one in Christ. Um, we'd also say this movement makes, and this is what's insidious about it, really. It makes any forgiveness of sin essentially impossible. Yep. In the push for 
generational guilt of the white person. There's no way that you can really and truly be forgiven. So you, you are told you are guilty because you stand in the systems of racism built by your race's forth, forefathers. Uh, so it doesn't matter what you might do specifically or even individually because you benefit from these systems of oppression for which you are guilty. So an example of this would be in the book Divided by Faith by Michael O. Emerson. Um, on pages 57 and 58, um, there's there's a letter to Christianity Today, and it's written this. It, it was written back in, I believe, the 60s. Was it? Yeah. Okay, so it, it it's, it's a white person, and it's addressed this way. It says, dear black person. Um, and then it goes on to say that she was basically ignorant of the sins that were perpetrated against the blacks, and that now that she knows of it, she's seeking forgiveness. So she, she's already sought forgiveness, found in Christ, um, and now seeks to educate herself. You hear the same thing being repeated almost word for word today. Now people are like, I'm, I just, you know, they're, they're prostrating themselves before black people and say, please forgive me. And I really want to educate. I want to become more aware. I want to become woke. Right? Yeah. So that, that sounds good on the surface. Um, but it's not, at least not according to the author, because she she's seeking an individual forgiveness and she's admitting an individual guilt. But what she's failed to do is admit that collective guilt that requires a collective forgiveness. That, um, that's me. That's evil. Because he's saying, he's like, okay, great. I'm glad you sought forgiveness, but you have not yet repented of a collective guilt. And it's like, how does an individual do that? You can't. You can't. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, and that's where the evil lies, right? So for forgiveness is is nowhere to be found. It, it can't be found. It's it's not enough to confess and repent of the sin that you yourself have before God. It's not enough um, as an individual to seek to change one's life and actions. It's not enough to seek a specific person or persons uh, against whom you may have sinned uh, in this way. The reason is that, as you were saying, you still belong to that collective whole called, you know, quote, white. Um, and so therefore you're still guilty. And no matter how many times that you repent, you will never receive forgiveness because by definition, forgiveness cannot be granted by an undefined collective. Uh, and so in that sense, you are chasing after the wind. Yeah. And, and behind all this is that God really does hate partiality within the church and within the systems of justice. And he takes note and it will not be missed but justice always cuts both ways, and, and, and you don't want to be deceived. When you demand justice from, for a person that you determine to be innocent in some way, like George Floyd, and you do it by demanding no justice for the presumptively accused, what you are is that you are an unjust person yourself. You're guilty of the very crime you condemn others for, and we see it happening all over the place. So when you show partiality, what you're really doing is denying the gospel. Now listen to what James 2 says. He says, uh, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is fearing, uh, fearing wearing, wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, 
Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. That's James 2, 1 through 10. So notice in that passage that there are external differences pointed out by James. You got the rich person, you got the poor person, two different people and situations. You also treat the rich man with favoritism, and you treat the poor man basically like a piece of furniture. Uh, James is not pretending like there are not these social distinctions, but James also makes it clear that though the society makes those distinctions, the church can't and must not. Your faith in Christ cannot result in favoritism. If it does, then you've lost sight of what Christ saved you from. You have made distinctions between brothers in Christ, and that Christ never makes. And so the result is that you're wicked and you're guilty of breaking the whole law. But beloved, the the social justice system does just that. We must make distinctions, and we cannot. They won't let you practice, quote-unquote, color blindness. It's forbidden. It's wrong. It's evil. Yeah. So— we simply say this about the whole social justice movement. It's, it is truly born out of an atheistic worldview, and it's not a biblical worldview. Uh, it is counter to the gospel's true message that all are guilty before their creator, and only through faith in Christ alone can one find any kind of true forgiveness. It denies the very forgiveness that's found in Christ and perpetuates actually a works righteousness as defined by whoever is the so-called oppressed. Uh, it promotes division in the church rather than healing it. I mean, we're, this is exactly what we're seeing yeah. now. Um, I, I keep thinking of that passage and I keep quoting it to people, but where it says that we are not uh, unaware of the devil's schemes. And in yes. context, yes. what is that? It's factions, it's division. Whenever that happens in the church, this is one of those great schemes. Um, this is salvation not found in the end of this age when God brings about true justice, but it's somehow found in this fallen age that's defined by what we're just flat out calling injustice. Um, Sin is shifted from individuals before God and individuals to an undefined collective that has no power to grant that forgiveness. So as as pastors, we reject social justice. Um, We reject it within our churches. We will push back against it as a dangerous interloper that has no place at the table or in the church. Yeah, we're not apologetic about that. We really want people to know that. You come to Missio Dei Fellowship and you're not, and you try to push it, you're going to run smack dab into the leadership of the church who will say, not here, not here. We, 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 it's, it's evil and you get it out of there. We're going to go back to and be defined by the word and what it means to be in Christ. Exactly. So, so, so we're going to continue to work through this topic in these upcoming weeks. Um, but until then, we'd say make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We love to hear your thoughts on social justice versus biblical justice. And as always, don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend. <laughs>